Insurance Unplugged is sponsored by Expert.ai. Expert.ai offers AI-enabled solutions that save time, cut costs, and improve outcomes for insurance companies by extracting critical information from documents for faster, better, and more consistent decisions. Expert.ai's enterprise AI platform for insurance powers solutions from underwriting to claims with unmatched accuracy, flexibility, and scale. Welcome to Insurance Unplugged. I'm your host, Lisa Wardlaw, joining you for another episode of AI in the City. This week, we have our guest, Caitlin McGregor, CEO of Plum. Cannot wait for you all to hear about her background, what drove her to create Plum, what they are focused on, and how that relates to AI and the talent that you should be thinking about when it comes to AI. So, Caitlin, would love for you to introduce yourself to our guests to give them a little bit of your background and experience and what led you to this point so far. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. As you said, I'm Caitlin McGregor. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Plum. And the journey for me really started almost 15 years ago. Uh, I had the opportunity to become the president of an educational writing software company, move from Canada down to the US to start up and run the company. And it's the second time that I was building a business from scratch for somebody else. And I went to make my first hire. And my executive coach said that if I screwed it up, it'd be a loss of $300,000 on the business. So not wanting to make a mistake, <laughs> I ended up using this psychometric assessment that assessed people's cognitive ability and behavioral fit for the role. And I had the advantage of using it on every person that applied for the company and just kept finding these incredible diamonds in the rough, people that on paper never would have got an interview but based on the assessment results showed that they were going to outperform and, and stay longer if we gave them the opportunity. And so over three years, we just kept hiring these diamonds in the rough. And I really learned about the power of industrial organizational psychology, the, the psychology of performance and productivity and enjoyment at work. And uh, I had an opportunity to you know, really democratize access to this highly predictive data on human behavior and, and in the workforce and create a positive user experience so that every single person, when they apply for a job or they're thinking about their career development or navigating their career, that they could have access to understand what drives them and gives them a sense of self-worth and what drains them and will lead to burnout. And how do we align those strengths to the behavioral needs of a job so that we can hire people that are going to outperform their peers and, and stay longer. And so it's been a 11-year journey of building this platform that leverages best-in-class IO psychology, uh, matching people to jobs based on the behaviors that are going to help them excel and, and stay longer. Well, I, I love so much about that. So so first of all, I think we owe it to our listeners to like, let's do like a how Lisa and Caitlin met. And I mean, they will never unpack this unless we unpack this for them. So let's go back a little bit in time. Maybe I was like, I'm I'm hearing the 11 year mark. We met in like eh, I want to say 2017, 2018. It was either 2017 or 18. Yeah. So we met <laughs> behind stage actually. I can't remember if you were going on stage or I was going on stage, but we met behind stage a mutual friend of ours who's amazing introduced us and at the time it was at this foundation called Move the Dial which was you cannot be what you cannot see in women in tech. I was working for a company we were sponsoring it you were speaking and behind the stage, it was like, well, you all just have to know each other. You have to meet. And I remember hearing your story and what 
I, I don't even know if I've told you this, but the first of all, a couple things that like female founded, you know, disruptor, somebody that was democratizing. So I had previously, maybe years before that, I had been to see an industrial psychologist as part of a job. I'll call it interview. It was an experience. And first of all, even though I had the opportunity to be, um, it, you know, put through an industrial psychological experiment experience. I didn't really enjoy it if I'm being honest with you, Caitlin. And so it was very interesting to me, the words that you use very intentionally about democratization and access to all. And then of course I was in a role and we'll get to this deeper leading transformation. And I was really um, struggling with my own hiring um like hiring success, not that I wasn't hiring good, amazing people, but that I was like, what's wrong with my criteria? What's wrong with my assessment? I was talking to all the big executive um, retained search firms, as you're aware, Caitlin, talent um, for STEM back in those days was really fast and furious. It was a little different economy than it is right now. And so I really came to you with like, hey, Caitlin, how does that apply if I start to think about it differently? And so maybe I'll get like, like we'll, we'll do like what, what was going on from your side. Cause you know, again, here's these two women meeting backstage, right? <laughs> so there were two parts to that. One is that um, it was this really interesting time where we had ample evidence of success of our technology and validation of the science behind it, you know, beating out the leading legacy assessment companies. We had just signed a massive insurance company at that time, beating out Aon Hewitt, was, which was one of the big consulting firms. And, and that's the thing with, you know, the experience that you talked about with an IO psychologist is that most people's exposure were to these really lengthy one-off assessments where they're a black box and you don't really even know how you performed. And if the higher you are up as an executive, the more it's like an in-person half day. Yeah. It's just really a miserable one-sided experience, right? <laughs> so we had already kind of at that point stood out from the those legacy assessment companies as being able to provide a technology solution that had as good, if not better accuracy with science and this positive user experience where it benefited the individual. And so we were kind of hitting our stride, starting to have success in enterprise, especially really being able to help insurance companies. And then you came and said, well, wait a second, if you understand this about all these strangers, all these people applying for a position, and you say you can identify the right fit of somebody that's going to outperform and stay longer, could you use this internally on my existing people? And like any good entrepreneur, I said, Lisa, <laughs> of course we can. But it was a really interesting time where I had two other enterprise companies that were also like you, very innovative thinkers, thinking ahead of everybody else uh, and really trying to invest in your own people, which if you look at talent landscape, there's been the budgets for talent acquisition over the last 20 years have just dwarfed talent management budgets. It's only really been post-COVID that we're all like, oh, wait a second, retaining our people actually is important. <laughs> and we're starting to see, you know, real diversion of let's stop spending all the money on sourcing and, and the crazy, you know, cost of sourcing and redirect some of that money on our existing people. So you and two other um, leaders from other businesses in the area were just really ahead of your thinking. And one was another insurance company, which I, I can call the Manulife was going through a massive, massive transformation. And then another one um, that was a global marketing company. And all three of you independently around the same time said, 
Can you use this internally on our existing employees? So we literally shoehorned our product. We took our talent acquisition meant for hiring external candidates and we turned it inwards onto the existing employees. And that's where our journey with you and two others started. And I'll let you talk about your experience of what you said, but I'm going to let the audience know this completely changed the trajectory of my business. I went off and raised $5 million in seed funding based on this new product vision. And then um, basically the year COVID hit, we launched a first ever in our entire industry end-to-end solution, talent acquisition, all the way through to talent management, using it on all of your existing people, onboarding, employee development, team optimization, succession planning, all, you know, identifying future leaders. And Lisa, if we had not met, (laughs) I don't know if we would have the international success that we have today, if it hasn't, hadn't been for your forward thinking and your ability to just jump right in and say, let's see what happens when we have real data on our people. Do we get different outcomes? And if we leverage <laughs> real proven science and data to help inform these decisions instead of just gut instinct. Anyway, over to you. Oh, I, I mean, I well, first of all, I love that because I didn't know that until recently when you and I caught up. So just for the audience to know, it's it's one of these serendipitous things that you you stay in touch with people because they foundationally affect you and your success and trajectory. And then Caitlin and I caught up. She's like, you know, after that, this is what we went and did. So I think that's interesting. You know, the, a couple of things that were really foundational. And I always, I mean, to your point, Caitlin, I tend to partner with people that are willing to conceptually stretch their technology, but still keep it fit for purpose. So what you were doing is saying, like any good entrepreneur, of course, but what you had very different than a lot of people is you were like, but foundationally, I know that it's just like ring fencing it off and applying it differently because you had already built the underlying intelligence yeah, Which we would, always had the vision of matching every person to every right. role. And it didn't matter if it was a candidate or an employee. Exactly. It was built so, from day one to service you. It just, that's not the, the where all the buttons were at the time. Right, exactly. So so it was like conceptually aligned. Maybe we were drawing it out and like of one another differently. I think what's really interesting, and I want to get to like the AI correlation here. I was really struggling as an executive I had a mandate to hire this transformation team and I hired people with all of the, I'll call it like resume backgrounds that you would typically hire for innovation and transformation. And I remember talking about this, Caitlin, like, you know, like what keeps me up at night. I remember coming to you and being very vulnerable and self-reflective. And I was like, you know, I've hired all the right people on paper, but not only like, okay, the projects and the success and achieving transformation, transformation is hard and there's a million reasons why it's going to fail. But I remember telling you, I don't feel like I have people that are comfortable with ambiguity, with white space, with thought. And that's when I was like, so, hey, Caitlin, could I look and see who has a high degree of comfort with ambiguity, which you and I could think about like risk and resilience. We could think about for, you know, AI, And I actually talk about this on stage a lot. Like, hey, y'all should look at Plum. Plum. (coughs) Because what I was trying to figure out is, it's not like somebody usually raises their hand or has a like leaderboard on their resume or on their LinkedIn profile. I mean, they can now with Plum. But they don't usually have this like, I'm comfortable with ambiguity. And like, 
for me, and maybe I was just like curious because I was a CFO, most people would not think a CFO would be comfortable with ambiguity, but my white space background really overshadows my linear background. It's, it's a much higher energizer than a depleter. When I think about AI, and I would love to know what you're thinking and seeing from like emerging leaders, like who are the visionaries in this space? It's of course the tech. How are we going to apply the tech, the use cases, scale, avoiding point solutions, all these things. Let's, let's just kind of call that like operating models for sure. The biggest thing I think about is who are thinkers that can think beyond just throwing a very powerful tool at making a widget slightly better, which to me, however we want to quantify it, Caitlin, I think of white space and ambiguity. How do you think of that? And how would you see visionaries leveraging assessments like Plum on their existing talent pool to really identify these maybe these skills that they haven't thought about before. Yeah. I mean, I think you experienced it firsthand where I know it, you were like, Ooh, I hired these people that are great on paper, but they're not delivering this transformation, innovative objective that you were hoping they were kind of just wanting to do more of the same. And so when you ended up seeing people's, you know, top talents with plum and you saw what, you know, drove them and, and what drained them, I think you were not surprised. It kind of confirmed your suspicion that you had hired the wrong people. But, you know, I think you found that you had a lot of people that liked actually repeating the same thing. Um, yeah. You found that you didn't find people with high innovation. You didn't find people with high adaptability. You you found people that were really good at executing. You found people that were really good at maybe conflict resolution or or communication. But you know, innovation and adaptation were not there, overwhelmingly weren't there. So you had a whole bunch of people that were risk adverse working together and keeping each other comfortable. Imagine that in insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to, I had to say it. Of course. So it's like, you know, really the first thing is that as human beings, as a species, we're pretty risk adverse. You know, it's, it's a nature of self-preservation, you know, don't, don't, you know, the fight flight or fight responses is real to protect us. And so what happens is we, we use pattern matching to try to give us a, a sense of comfort that we're not being too risky. And therefore the likelihood of failing is, is a lot less. So what happens in the recruitment process is we look for those sense of, of patterns to give us a sense of security. Well, person with this degree from that school did well in this field in the past. Therefore, I'm going to hire somebody else from that field, you know, from that school with that experience is why we hire from competitors all the time. Well, if they worked at a competitor, then they, they've already de-risked that they can handle this industry. So I'm going to hire them. So we, we use these ultimately false markers to give us this sense of security by just pattern matching. And if you, the whole goal is to transform and do something different than your competition, well, there's a reason why that's a really bad place of starting. But it's scary when when it's, an, you know, you don't know what success looks like. You don't know what you don't know. So what are you going to rely on? How are you going to de-risk it? And this is where the opportunity to use data and the opportunity to look at the science behind what predicts performance. And so what IO psychology, industrial organizational psychology has been able to prove, um, not just Plum, but the entire industry over the last 30 years, is that where you went to school does not predict performance. 
You know, what degree you got does not predict performance. It can tell you eligibility. If you may, you know, in accounting, you may need a certification in order to practice. Great. That's a certification that matters. But it, you know, if you line up a hundred people that have the same certification, it won't tell you who is going to perform well. So there's the eligibility question. But if you want to look at performance, it's not past experience. It's not working at a competitor. It's not how many years that you've worked. And it's not what school or what degree you got. Those actually aren't predictors of success. So full stop, how how much of the process is broken right out of the gate because we're relying on those things. They can help in terms of giving us a sense of, you know, how much onboarding or or how much ramp time will this person need? They, They can help with other things. You know, if you're trying to figure out salary bands, things like that. But when you want to look at how do you actually make sure that you're hiring people that are going to be productive, that are going to perform better than their peers, that are going to stay at the organization instead of, you know, the second they're onboarded, a year goes by and they're off to the next, you know, the next opportunity, which is very common these days. There is no need to stay at a job three years and, or you'll be discounted at the next employer. People are hopping around like crazy. So if you really want to look at what is it that companies need to be harnessing, it comes down to which behaviors do you need that align with your business objectives. If your goal is to be transform like to transform and your goal is to do things differently, then you need to hire people that get out of bed every day because they are excited to innovate and do things differently. And if you hire a bunch of people that need a system that is predictable and repeatable, then like, so it's about figuring out what are the business objectives? What are the behaviors that you need to see? And so I like to talk about how the KBIs are the new KPIs. So instead of those key performance indicators to align with your business objectives, what are those key, you know, the the key behaviors that you need, the key behavioral indicators that you need in order for somebody to deliver success at your organization. And that's what Plum does. We measure the KBIs and we measure the top talents in somebody and we align how likely that person is to show up every day and excel at those key behaviors that you need for success. So I love that on so many levels because I think, say, first of all, like, you know, now I'm like advancing from like where I was with what we'll call digital 1.0. And I was like, this is like insulting. I usually say it's insultingly intelligent, right? Because I'm always like, How do you put this together at a much more visionary level? But now with AI, I think we have a couple of industry, economic, talent, and the talent's going to be the key that unlocks this, right? We've got a couple of variables coming at us, which we talk about a lot on the show, which is the hype versus the hyperbole, right? So we're going to have the, I call it the onslaught of widget, use case, deployment, widgets without the um, strategic thinking, by the way, everything should pay for itself and add value. I'm a CFO by nature, but we're going to have what I call widgetism, point, pointillism without the artistry known as point, pointillism. Um, or we're going to have the everything so esoteric that nothing gets done, right? But Caitlin, as much as we talk about like AI operating models, it's still people that talent and humans that are going to have to abstract this, I I would almost say conceptually, because if we just use AI to do what we do a little bit better, I would probably advocate that that's really not the right use case for AI. I mean, maybe 
but in my mind, that's like a lot of power for something that we probably don't need it for. There's a lot of other tools that we could probably consider. So when I get into debate and discussion with people in the industry, I'm usually like, how did you reimagine the process? Not make the process Six Sigma lean slightly better, but how did you reimagine the process? And a lot of my colleagues tell me that one of the things they struggle with is their employees can't reimagine the process. What is the old Henry Ford quote? If you ask people if they want to go faster, they'd say, give me a faster horse. They would have never invented the car. I think that we might be at that inflection point on innovation, ingenuity, and imagining something like, yes, with tooling that never existed before as the enabler. How do you think about that in terms of like, what would you think some of the, like if someone's listening to this and they're like, huh, that's rattling my brain. Because I think most people would think AI, they might think, and I'm not saying we wouldn't need engineers. I'm not saying we wouldn't need linear people, but I'm looking for the people that can conceptualize, the innovators. So, so what? how are you seeing that? And are you seeing anybody like start to use um, tools for that? Yeah, yet? absolutely. I think first and foremost, and, and I'm sorry, it sounds like a broken record, but like, what is it that you're trying to achieve? And so it starts with really acknowledging at the highest strategic level that there is an opportunity to do things differently than ever before. But it is those humans that come up with the strategy of how to then go and put the work and the effort into actioning it. And so, you know, it's, we all know the blockbuster versus Netflix, you know, (laughs) most people are on a path to be blockbuster and go bankrupt. Who is challenging that there's a different way of doing things? And there are opportunities that AI is now presenting that honestly, three years ago would have been too expensive the barrier to entry would have been too high. The amount of extra money that the company would have to have to invest to go in that other direction would have been significantly more. AI is making the ability to go and pursue certain things that were off the table now possible. And so who is dedicating the time to the possible? Who is creating the argument that this is worth stopping everything else to go and pursue this. It, it does remind me, I said there was another insurance company that that approached us around the same time and it was Manulife. And they, at the time, were going through their transformation where they had 5,000 developers that were coding in a language that was going to become obsolete. They were moving their entire tech stack to something more innovative and they were like, what do we do with these 5,000 developers? And so they figured out what do we, what's the behavioral mindset that we need developers that are going to be successful at upskilling to have in order to be trained in this new language. And they opened it up to the entire organization and they called it Manulife University. And they used Plum to assess who had the right behaviors that would align to the new needs of the role. And they found that people that had a 70% plum match or higher stayed three and a half times longer after the upskilling program. So like really thinking about what does success look like and do you have the right behaviors that naturally motivate somebody so that you're not telling them what to do. They're naturally motivated to go out and solve the future of the business. And that can sometimes be a tiger team. You know, you had a whole transformation team Um, We've heard a lot of AI experts say, you know, maybe the first step is not disrupting the whole business, but really dedicating that, you know, those ninja task force people on figuring out the future and, and guiding the way and making sure you have the right people doing that. But I think at the same time, understanding you're going to have to repurpose a lot of your existing people. 
And do you understand your bench strength? Do you understand the talent you already have? So that if you had to get rid of, you know, 5,000 old developers, you knew how to, which ones to upscale and where to put them in a new direction. Like, do you understand once you have that new strategy, how to quickly turn on a dime and re-put people in the right roles to execute on the new strategy? It's the people behind AI. Yes. And it's all, it's all, it actually reminds me of, um, you know, that when Jobs came back to Apple and he rebranded it, he didn't rebrand it as the tech. He rebranded it as the, you know, insert the computer, the laptop, the whatever that geniuses use. And so I think that there is a missing aspect. We think of people as we need the right skills to do this. What we haven't thought of, to your point, is what are the behaviors that we need to activate AI both at a strategy, execution, foundational level. And then to your point, who is, I'll use the word like chameleon, who has the behaviors that can learn and morph over? And what I cannot believe that I could not see this because, I mean, I like to think of myself as very, not only outspoken and opinionated, but like visionary and thoughtful, you know, like I I like to think of myself like this. And when I did the assessment on my team and then on the whole organization, it was like this light bulb went off, Caitlin. And I say this to all of my colleagues. I'm like, if you think that whoever you are, are above this, and by the way, you're all going to be doing it with AI. So please pay attention. Caitlin and I are trying to help you out. (laughs) It was so obvious to me after I ran the assessment of how much risk adverseness I had on my team, how much process orientation I had on my team. And I'll use the word linearity, how much framework linearity. And and of course, as soon as I saw the results, I was like, of course, this makes so much sense. What surprised me, and I think this, hopefully the executives listening to this, Caitlin, because I always like to ask, like, what do you wish people would hear from this? What surprised me were the people that I had not come across as like, they can run this project or they could do that, or they're, you know, up on the, what I'll call it the advanced leadership, you know, ladder program, like, et cetera. Because actually most of those people, this was before COVID, so it was probably even worse now. Um, They weren't finding fulfillment intellectually in what they were being asked to do at work. So they were leveraging those behaviors that I wasn't seeing at work. Probably, And and I don't mean that they weren't non-performers, by the way, but they weren't contribute. I didn't see this. And so I brought, I did a test, you know me, Caitlin. I brought a couple of the people that tested really at a high match rate in on this project. I was like, where have you been all of my life? What? It was like this party that I was like, oh my gosh. We, and it's not to say that we didn't have diverse thinkers. I don't want anybody to think that we shouldn't have diverse behaviors. But I hadn't experienced that level of thinking and white space level of comfort until I connected this. So I can imagine, and this is where I want to kick it over to you for call to action and what you think people should be thinking about if they're in charge of AI or data science or underwriting or claims, because probably their HR people would support them, but aren't thinking this way either, Right. If you're in charge of these functions and you're about to be shoved with a mandate of you got to deploy AI and you got to roll out AI, 
Like what, where do you think people should start, Caitlin? Like, like what would your advice to them be? So I think that there's two things. One is recognizing that, you know, the more we use tools and the more, you know, we become native users of things, the more likely we are to start incorporating them. So I think we, you know, a great example is companies thought it was impossible to be fully remote and be productive. And until we were forced to do it, you know, then we were able to show hey, it can, it can be done. So with AI tools, it's kind of like people aren't going to naturally necessarily change what they're doing on a day-to-day basis unless it's mandated, unless it's like, we we need to do this. If you were used to going to the store and buying Blockbuster, you know, renting Blockbuster movies, and now all of a sudden it's like, no, as an organization, you are never going to the movie store. You are <laughs> only watching this on as a streaming and like force whatever that change step is, there is a certain amount of you have to make it the default across the company. So at our company, for example, everybody has a ChatGPT plus team license now. So the company pays for it. But even I forget where it could be used. So constantly finding new opportunities to just become native users. But you need somebody leading. We like to talk about the Sherpa partner shadow model. Like you need somebody to Sherpa the way and show the possibilities and lead. So who are those people that are championing, you know, the new playbooks, championing the discovery of how to do things differently is, is showing the success. Who are those basically early adopters within your organization leading the way? And then recognizing that the people that have really low adaptation, the people that really need consistency and stability and need heavy process don't make those the people that you're going to try to roll out first, you know, let them be your leg or, you know, your late adopters, just like in the market, you know, really being able to target, Hey, these people, if we gave them an opportunity to be the spokes people of this new stuff, they'll just, you know, they'll be so energized. We'll retain them. They'll be so excited. They'll be infectious in terms of their excitement. These are the right people to lead the way. These people, they're going to have a harder time. And by the way, this executive, they're going to have a harder time. So maybe don't have this executive lead their team first. So really being able to, again, we want everybody jumping out of bed in the morning, excited about the work they're going to do and ending on a Friday, right? The Friday right now being like, that was a great week. I actually can't wait for Monday. That is possible. Just take the people that are great at process and ask them to fix the process problems and take the people that are great at coming up with out-of-the-box ideas and give them the opportunity to create that change in your organization. It's the old saying of the right people in the right roles. And AI is claiming that they can get the right people in the right roles. AI right now is doing a whole bunch of pattern matching and a whole bunch of keyword scraping and inferring of keywords. And it's really not getting to understanding the human behind the work. You need industrial organizational psychology to do that. And that's what you can really get the person to be motivated to outperform, to stay longer because they love what they're doing. And it's just about aligning people to the right roles. I love the way you break that down on a couple of levels, because I always talk about things being very... You have to surgically dissect tools, like whether you're building an architecture, whether you're deploying tools, you have to surgically dissect fit for purpose. And I love the fact that you kind of create that there's a distinction between what AI is good at and what AI is not good at. And what we're talking about here is like AI is actually not good at understanding the human right now. Like that is very much industrial psychology. And Caitlin, as soon as I took my first assessment, I was like, it was like, 
by the way, the, the one where I did, I did a two day mountain retreat when I did mine and I didn't get even a report. So like, at least when I got through with the plum assessment, I was looking at my energizers and my depleters and I had forgotten how much muscle I had built around my depleters. And so it was so fulfilling. And in a, in a way that didn't make it, it's just so obvious when you're like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. But I think what's really critical here is that we need the leaders to lead the AI. And where organizations, this is one of my biggest, please insurance executives, listen to me. The failure is, okay, we can talk about change and adoption and all this stuff. No, the failure is that you didn't have the right mindset designing new. And then you, like, then to your point, Caitlin, like who executes, how do people get bored? How do we have these pods that kind of support one another? I love. And I also just want to add one little other point. There's so much to AI that's not just, I'll call it a mathematical algorithm, and in particular, like LLMs and how we train these. And I'm just going to put a little plug in here for the liberal arts because my daughter's in this, you know, degree right now, (laughs) medieval history. Like she's getting a master's at St. Andrews, an amazing university. And she's like, everyone's wondering what she's going to do for a job. And she just got a call last week to go work for an AI company. You'll think this is fascinating, Caitlin, to train the LLMs. Because clearly she's got a background in Latin, English, history, research. And so the other thing I think that we should be more open to as as an industry, in particular in insurance, because we think linear, we think a lot of math or process. I think we need to be open to the social sciences and the spherical connectivity that's also going to power AI. And and I, I think that using tools that assess behavior, like we wouldn't pick that resume out of it. Like we wouldn't write a job description saying, please apply for this job. I, and I, I think that like that gets back from the talent management. Now we've gone back out into the recruiting and what we're searching for talent, which is why I think these things need to be intertwined. What's your call to action for people? Like I always say, they've they cruised along. They're about to hit end on the podcast. They've heard from Caitlin, one of my favorite people in the industry. Please look her up. Please follow what she's doing. She is like a beacon of like what should be done in talent management. Like one of my favorite people. But what do you hope that they take away from this conversation, Caitlin? I think one thing is we can all start with our own self-awareness. You know, uh, our jobs are changing also quickly. You know, the opportunities to step up, to to put your hand up and say, I'm the best person to lead this next thing. I think it, it doesn't matter where you are in your career, you could benefit from some data to help emphasize what makes you exceptional. So my first call to action is everyone go to plum.io and take your own plum profile. It's totally free and you can see what your top talents are, what drives you, what drains you. And by seeing that data, you can all of a sudden be like, oh, wait a second. What about if I actually knew this about my teammates? Or what about if I knew this about the other people I don't work with because I need to put together that task force? How do I know the right people to include or the people that would be better suited on a different project? You know, your daughter should be taking her plum profile because the (laughs) real question is, if she accepts that job, then that company is going to spend a lot of time onboarding her. And if eight months later she realizes that she hates it, it's a lose-lose. And she's probably resistant to do it right now because she envisioned a different future for herself. Exactly. But Plum 
But Plum might show her that this is exactly Certainly the that place. one that was in, even remotely connected to what her mother does for a living, right? Exactly. <laughs> but she may realize that actually, you know, there are great things that drive her that she would get to do every day. Yeah. And she might now be in a career path that she never even imagined. And it gives her confidence to take that leap. So I would say the first thing is you or your kids that are, you know, starting their careers or your colleagues that you're trying to help out. Start with self-awareness and, and have this data for yourself. Um, that would be the first step. The second step would be, I recognize that starting out 2024, there's a lot of you know, ambiguity in terms of what the future holds. There's a lot of conversations about trying to be prepared for whatever that next lever is that's going to be pulled. Is it that we're acquiring a company and all of a sudden now we need to be cost efficient? So how do I understand the company I just acquired and who are the best, most innovative people I want to keep? Who are the ones that maybe are not adding value because they're redundant? Like being able to understand the people that you have means that the second that the business objectives become clear, once the economy stabilizes or there's enough confidence from leadership to say, go on this new initiative, by understanding your bench strength and understanding the people you have right now, it'll allow you to move really quickly and get ahead of the competition. If you, you know, we're finding a lot of mid-market companies right now aren't waiting. They're, they're like, oh, well, enterprise slows down. We're going to jump in and try to jump ahead. Awesome. This is a way to, you know, get an ROI in 90 days and become a skills-based organization in 90 days by having data on your own people. Or it's an opportunity for enterprises to be ready for the second they can hit the go button. So there's a lot that can be done right now. And it's kind of doing that diagnostic of who do you have so that then you can align the right behaviors with the right business objectives. I love that. Every time I interact with you, I just am like, okay, I have this idea and I have that idea and I have this idea and and how to deploy you know, the, I think the most important thing and where we started this conversation is that you found a way to democratize this and, and by democratizing it, commoditizing it in a way that the average person would have access to, which was absolutely never the case. And of course you've made it better over time. I think that in kind of wrapping all this up, what I would like all of our listeners to challenge themselves on is to, to know themselves, themselves like self-reflection And all of you who are probably listening along by now, you're probably either adjacent or in charge of a function that you don't run HR and you're probably sitting here thinking like, how can I do this? I am here to tell you that like I called Caitlin up and I'm like, hey, I want to explore this. And I was able to get it like up and running very quickly. All of us owe it to ourselves, our team, our fiduciary duty to our organization with these mandates like deploying AI to figure out not just the technical operating model, but the people operating model. And so with that, Caitlin, any last words that you want to leave our guests before we wrap up another episode? I just want to thank you because since those early days, we, like I said, now are all around the world. We have huge volumes of people completing their plum profiles every day. We work with tons of multinational insurance companies. You know, I'm really grateful you you saw us in the early days and it really helped us to, you know, go globally and transform um, this industry. So I just want to thank you for being a critical part of our journey and helping us be in such a great place of success. And Yet a lot of what we do is the change management. You know, come and talk to us. We've got an entire team. It's part of our subscription to help navigate how to bring in this data and transform organizations. And it really is about 
How does this become some something that benefits the employee just as much as the employer? We believe that when people flourish, business thrives. And we're really committed for this to be a positive transformational experience. It's really win-win for the individual and the company. So thank you for being part of this journey. Really appreciate oh. it. Well, thank you. Thank you for being a guest on Insurance Unplugged, Caitlin. And honestly, um, I couldn't be like more excited than to know that people like you and what you set out to do and to break the status quo of things that were otherwise inhibitive or prohibitive have come to market and really kind of like jackhammered through that and given people options that they didn't otherwise have. So for all of you all listening to another episode of Insurance Unplugged, AI in the City, it's all about how you think through the deployment of AI. So make sure you have the talent with the key behaviors in place to actually activate what you need for your business. Thank you so much. Until next time. This episode of Insurance Unplugged was brought to you by Expert.ai. With Expert.ai's hybrid AI approach, the symbolic AI, machine learning, and LLMs are combined to bring the level of understanding and insight offered by an experienced claims professional at scale across the organization. Join us next week as we continue our discussion on Insurance Unplugged. Uncovering all the behind the scenes, AI in the city, sponsored by expert.ai.